Chef Salilmater's Singapura is a Southeast Asian beach bar inspired establishment located in the Gramercy neighborhood of Manhattan, East 20th Street, New York. Bridget Leslie interviewed him at his restaurant where he's been shaping how New Yorkers eat Southeast Asian fare and has more plans to educate the locals through new culinary offerings. Bridget asked him about the differences between Singaporean and Malaysian cuisine. Right. It's also people who have traveled to Singapore as well. So that is kind of exciting, right? Like, oh, I went to Singapore this time. I went to Singapore and I'm missing the food. And now it's getting slightly easier, um, you know, to educate people. That's our biggest challenge. People yeah. don't really uh, know much about the Singapore food culture. Uh, they associate it more with the Chinese influences and they forget about the Indian influence. They forget about the Portuguese influences. forget about many different things and you know they usually associated with noodles and progress which it isn't you know it's a lot more than that you've been credited with many things and um rumor has it amongst the media those who cover food is that you put singapore on the map here amongst new yorkers palettes what do you think that was uh, that was our goal and attempt to do so uh i don't think singapore has arrived on the culinary map Mm. yet I don't think it has a popularity yet. I don't think, uh, you know, like back in the day, now I'm talking like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the Thai government really invested a lot of money in educating people about Thai food, about the culture. And now today, if you look at New York City, there's like a Thai restaurant in every corner and people understand Thai food truly. Whether And now regional Thai cuisine is popular as well, right? Um, the Korean government did so as well. Japanese government's been doing it for a very long time. I don't think the Singapore government has done enough uh, to educate Westerners about food. Urban hawker is a good start, but at the same time, it's not there. Well, um, funny you say that. One of the things that um, keeps coming up is why Singaporean cuisine, because you're a well-educated chef. You could cook any type of cuisine you Actually, want. I have no culinary educational background whatsoever. But in your technique. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in my technique, you know, this is something I learned. Uh, you know, we started with Laut on 17th Street. Uh, right there, the most popular dishes were Singaporean dishes, and we started something called the Makan Club over there. Uh, it was a bunch of young Singaporeans asking me to make food that's not on my menu. Uh, it became super popular, hence we created this particular location. Um, Similarly, on the Upper West Side, you know, we have an Indonesian restaurant where I focus on Indonesian food. We just opened up Kabaya on 17th across the street from Laut, which is the first ever Peranakan restaurant in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and you're on the Michelin Guide for Tell for Us Laut, About That. And for Wow, and hopefully now, you know, hoping this cross for Kebab and Sharab. What are you working towards? I'm working towards gastro diplomacy. Uh, I believe that all the problems in the world can be solved through food. If, uh, you know, countries that fight with each other through guns, if we fight, if we don't fight, but we invite each other to our homes and eat each other's food, there'll be no, no reason to fight. And is that your mindset because of the culture you come from? Because, you know, typically Indian culture is all about food and it's about okay, hospitality, uh, you know, mm-hmm. guests are treated like God, uh, you know, Atiti Devo Baba. So that means like when somebody comes to your home, you're going to treat them like 
God is some shareholder, and you got to treat them well. Mm-hmm. You got to treat them right, and you got to make sure that they're happy and satisfied before they leave. Uh, that's our goal. I think that that should, and that's not just a part of India. That's a part of Asia, I believe. Absolutely. Now, tell me, were you the one always growing up cooking in the kitchen, or not at all? Uh, initially, I set up everything. Like right now, as you saw, like this is a new menu where. Um, so you know, but in your home, in your home kitchen. Oh, in my home kitchen, yes, I don't have up. a choice. Uh, like <laughs> growing I, up, I had to. My father taught me how to make my first ever dish, which was an omelet. So slowly but surely, breakfast became my duty. Mm-hmm. And then at Parsons, uh, you know, when I first came over here to this country, I didn't know how to do dishes. I didn't know how to like do laundry. I didn't. I did not want to clean the bathroom. <laughs> so uh, I made a deal with my roommates where if I was to cook for you, could you do all those other things for me? Um, we agreed, which was amazing. So yeah, I I was cooking at home. I was cooking in my dorms. And, uh, you know, when I graduated, the economy collapsed and crashed. And I thought that was the worst thing that ever happened to us. But I think that was the best thing that ever happened to us. So that was fun. Why is that? What was the best thing that happened Because to otherwise I would have been in fashion today. I would have probably been working for, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I probably never would have been happy. I would have been in a nine to five and, uh, you know, maybe cursing myself out and not being able to, you know, I mean, there's pros and cons to like working for someone and working for yourself as well. But I wouldn't have been able to meet the amazing people that I did or have an impact that I did if I was still stuck in fashion. So how did you go from fashion to food? It's very similar. Uh, you know, like fashion and food is trend based. Uh, I think they're both very dynamic in nature. You have to change with people's taste and palate all the time, whether it's clothes, whether it's food. And I think that the same connections allow you to grow as well, right? Uh, most fashion people are big foodies. They're adventurous. They're, they're very well traveled because of their job. And they have to understand different food cultures and different cultures. But what was that point? What was the perfect point for you? Why did you decide, okay, I'm going to get into this restaurant world? not fashion world. I'll put my pencil uh, down, I pick up a utensil. It was not by choice. I started working in a restaurant in front of house as a maitre d'. Um, I increased that person's business by 30-40% within the first six months. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I can do it for him, I can do it for me. Uh, That's the entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> yes. So that was, the, uh, yeah, it was just you know, the restaurant industry allows you to pick up a job very quickly in yeah. any position, right? Even if it's washing or matronly or hosting or anything, mm-hmm. you can start small and grow very quickly right. in the industry. Now, you know, amongst us, we have a major social media culture for food, right? Everything. Everything is social media. Social media. Yeah. So um, people want to be the uh, Gordon Ramsay's, the Cillian Maters of the world very quickly. Any, any advice for the up and coming stars? I think a lot of people are focusing on making it Instagram worthy and not uh, tongue worthy. I think if we focus on the palate uh, and there's, you know, think of your food like uh, pugs, you know, like the breed of dogs, because pugs are so freaking ugly that it makes them cute. And that's why they're so popular uh, because of how ugly they are. That's that's what I think. And, you know, if, if you make your food, Tastes amazing. Uh, you know, yes, people eat with their eyes first. 
but at the same time, there's a certain beauty and quality behind uh, inner beauty, you know. So think of food as inner beauty. So, so don't worry too much about the Instagram. No, I mean, you know, because those the people who come in and take a picture of your food, they're not really coming in to enjoy your food. They're coming in to, you know, gain a follower or two, and there's a different agenda behind it. Yeah. But somebody who comes just to truly enjoy your food, they're not concerned about, like, you know, having microgreens on your food or, you know, some sort of, like, foam and that kind of thing. Like, I, I'm, I'm a traditionalist that way. I don't believe in foam and I don't believe in all that crap. I just think that make it taste good. The rest, yeah. we'll worry about later. So tell me about the chili crab because that's how I knew about your restaurant in the first instance. So, uh, you know, chili crab, again, is one of the most iconic dishes of Singapore. Uh, Hainanese chicken rice is a national dish of Singapore, but I believe that it should be chili crab. And I think that uh, it is extremely reflective of the melange of the cultures that come together in Singapore, right? You have your mantau, your Chinese bread on the side to dip it in your sauces. You know, it's like sweet, sour, spicy variation. Very Dutch, very Indonesian, very Java. And, uh, you know, the Sri Lankan mud crab is, like, iconic as well. So that's the one dish that brings everything together. And uh, not to say Hainanese chicken rice doesn't do that, but, you know, uh, a chili crab is super eventful. It's an event when you eat a chili crab, right? You've got to get your hands dirty. And uh, I think it should be truly iconic in nature. And it's super recognizable and not easy to talk about. Well, my friend Jackie came with me to this restaurant. Um, and uh, she's Singaporean, by the way, so she's a hard okay. critic okay. of Singaporean food because she knows what the yeah. culture and the flavors are for, and she loved it. So there you go. You've got a thumbs up from a Singaporean. Okay, okay. Future Thank plans. You. Future plans. Mm -hmm. uh, what can you tell us in this moment? Oh, I would say to educate more and more people about kabaya right now because it's a Peranakan concept and people are not very familiar with Peranakan people, Peranakan culture, Peranakan food. Uh, they've eaten it a lot. They just don't know that they like it. Uh, so the idea is to educate them. That's the biggest challenge. And once they know about it and they try it and they eat it, hopefully, surely, but, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, people will be able to, like, look at an Asam Kadas or, like, a Rendang or something like that recognize it right away and be like, hey, I know, I have this here, and now I want it everywhere else. So educate the Australian audience for us. What is it? What's the cuisine? So the Peranakan cuisine, the Peranakan people uh, came about when the Indian and the Chinese immigrants uh, moved to Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore and intermingled with the local Java people. Uh, the women are known as nyonyas and the men are known as babas. Uh, the food in itself, uh, you know, they use a lot of the local Malay ingredients along with Indian and Chinese within them. In terms of cooking techniques, you have wok cooking, you have like slow braised cooking, you have like flash frying, grilling. So, it, you know, like technically, it's actually a very hard uh, cuisine to pull off because it requires a lot of different techniques and it's... Uh, in my opinion, a lot more quote-unquote elevated than any French or Italian cuisine on planet. You know, uh, I, I don't like it when people use the term elevated and, you know, whitewash the food. No. It's good as it is. It's the way it should be, and it's already elevated high. When you whitewash it, you're actually, like, 
not elevating the food, you're not doing justice to it, and you're demoting the food. That's just my opinion on that. Well, yes, Salil, great to chat to you, and hopefully oh, TWR will come <laughs> over to your new place and check it out. Absolutely, I would love that. Don't worry. Bridget Leslie there in New York with Chef Salil Mater of Singapore.